0: Welcome to the Well Said Podcast, presented by Speech First.
1: Free speech on college campuses under attack. They usually weaponize harassment policies and bias reporting systems. The lawsuit filed by Speech First claims that TSU and its officials have, quote, deter, suppress, and punish constitutionally protected speech.
2: A petition from Speech First, a First Amendment group called for the dean's removal. Well, now the dean is on leave. Here's your host, Sharice Trump.
1: Welcome to a special episode of Well Said, what a year it's been for the show. We have covered some amazing topics and interviewed many of the greatest voices fighting for free speech in higher ed. We covered topics such as cancel culture in the academy and episodes featuring Ben Weingarten and Professor Matthew Wailicki. We discussed some of the major free speech litigation wins of the year with Alliance Defending Freedoms, Lathan Watts. We had Stanford University students on to discuss how these elite institutions have been overtaken by far-left radicals, and I delve into Title IX and the free speech implications in a solo explainer episode. I was also excited to have George Galicia and Yonmi Park on, both who are political dissidents of despotic regimes, who were able to tell us their stories and provide warning of some of the disconcerting trends they are seeing in campus, in campus and American politics today. We took a number of deep dives in the world of ESG and the DEI industrial complex in episodes with Aaron Cariotti and Bill Jacobson. We discussed some major issues of anti-Semitism on college campus and the major legal questions associated with what we've seen with Professor David Bernstein and others. And some of my favorite episodes were part of these series we put together called Courage is Contagious, where we interviewed young leaders who are leading the charge for their generation in the fight for free speech. This included U Penn swimmer Paula Scanlon and Irish middle schooler Brandov, author of the poem I Am Not a Dress. I have compiled some of my favorite moments in each of these episodes we put out this year, so I hope you enjoy.
3: Hey when it comes to crafting all of their policies, many of them, which might not be directly related when we're talking about a corporation necessarily to their bottom line, but they believe to be virtuous, uh, just, and good. And that also manifests itself also for corporations in you know, progressive political activism generally. Now, ESG is another sort of movement that's been embraced in the corporate world. And we've seen a transition from What was perceived to be shareholder capitalism, which is businesses exist to drive profits, maximize profits for their shareholders, to stakeholder capitalism, which says that businesses have to maximize profit or benefit for a whole slew of parties, not just customers, but vendors, suppliers, lenders, and really more broadly, the world itself, all of society as a stakeholder. And so this is manifests itself when we talk about ESG in terms of these three principles of environmental, social, and governance factors. The environmental one is well understood to generally manifest itself in a push for net zero policies, uh, sustainable supply chains, and the like. So environmentalism as applied to business. Beyond that, of course, there's the social side, and that really can manifest itself in sort of the embrace of the DEI principles and more broadly kind of a social justice-oriented focus, again, internally in a company's policies and practices, as well as the political views that it espouses and the causes it takes on, oftentimes through its coffers. And then the governance side is more about the fact that there's actually accountability within a company, strict and rigorous controls in place—at least on its face—but it can also manifest itself in, oftentimes, these shareholder resolutions that corporations have increasingly embraced to ensure that companies report on diversity within their workforces and within their boards of directors, and then that their boards of directors actually follow some sort of uh, represent representation. Uh, proportional, again, to where people fall in society. So oftentimes, Mm -hmm. it's kind of the application of DEI principles within a company. And so the focus of my article, long-winded way of getting there, was on the embrace of ESG for business and DEI, both as majors and beyond, at the Warden School, obviously one of the most renowned and prominent business schools in American history. Uh, and what the significance of that was, and then how it manifests itself and what people on campus actually think about it, because both ESG and DI, on their face would seem to not only be kind of separate and apart from you know, what you'd be learning in a business school, either entrepreneurial skills or basic finance, accounting and the like, uh, but in reality, as some argued, as critics have argued with ESG and DI that the embrace of those principles at companies actually ultimately serve to the detriment of their operations, their shareholders, and beyond. And so that was the focus of that article. And led me to this other one at Newsweek about the shun, silence, and cancel it at universities who actually are critical of the embrace of these kinds
4: of disciplines.
1: Um, Great, okay. So then I guess when you're looking at the Wharton School of Business specifically, are you saying that there is now actual degrees that students can get while studying business in ESG or DEI on that campus?
3: That's correct. This will be, this academic year will be the first year where those are actual majors. There's a major in ESG for business and DEI as well. And then at the undergraduate level within Warden, all undergraduates receive the same degree, but you can concentrate in specific areas. And so undergraduates as well will be able to concentrate in ESG for business or
1: DEI. This is fascinating to me because it actually reminds me a lot of the shift in the academy generally where the role of the administrator is now kind of a career path or, you know, you see like these HR career paths and they kind of end up falling into these bureaucratic uh, jobs at universities when it used to be the academy was run by those who led, who were thought leaders in the academy, right? Like you had professors and other academics who would run universities uh, and teach on occasion, or maybe not teach at all and just run the university separately. But there seems to be this shift where we're going to continue seeing folks who are even in other disciplines like business, where folks are actually being encouraged or students are being encouraged to, instead of Focusing on the skill uh, that's actually going to benefit them in the long run with their with their job, whether it be like finance or marketing or how, whatever path they're going down in the business route, they're actually instead going to uh, kind of pile on this administrative role, right? Of like because I mean, it, what what reason would there be to get a degree in ESG if you're not going to be the ESG administrator at some company, right? So like, what's what's the I guess what is how does the university advertise this type of stuff? How do how do they talk to the students about it?
3: Yeah. So I, I will say, first of all, I think your point is really well taken that you know, we always hear this cliche, but it certainly has, has borne itself out that you know, we're all living on the campus now. And there's been a dramatic increase on campuses in terms of administrative staff, huge overhead associated with administration. And that manifests itself in sort of the equivalent of like an HR bureaucracy mm. on campuses. And we've seen, of course, at the same time, the explosion of administrators on campuses who are very much focused on these very kinds of areas of ESG and DEI and the like. You see an explosion of the administrative state. And you've seen the explosion of, or at least a desire for associated staffers, like you said, at companies. So how does the how do proponents at a business school like Warden kind of justify this increased emphasis on ESG or DEI? Well, they'd say a couple of things. The first thing they'd say is look, corporations are embracing these principles. And so they need people with the expertise of a warden grad to go and fill burgeoning roles in creating, essentially, these mini administrative states within companies. The companies will also claim that if you adhere to these principles, it actually leads to better business outcomes. And there is huge dispute and debate over this. And the last year has really challenged the proponents of ESG in the financial services world, for example, which exerts substantial influence over what the companies that it invests in and advises actually do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, you wouldn't want to be disfavored by uh, major investors, and you're going to cater to their interests and their whims. Um, And so the financial services industry in large part has been all in on embracing these principles. But ESG-related companies, have performed quite poorly in the last year, where there's been a massive rush, for example, into the oil companies and the like, with the kinds of companies, the very companies that would be disfavored if you're a proponent of ESG. So there's conflicting evidence, to say the least, on how profitable put, putting what they perceive to be or would argue to be the good above just profits, and it's not clear that it aligns with profits.
1: What what can you say on? These kind of ideological pushes in the universities, how is it hurting the study in the field of science, uh, more specifically, just that that type of field? Like when you're talking about long-term research, we're talking about people, like you mentioned, people actually going into the fields that they're getting their PhDs in. Um, what are some of the long-term effects here?
5: Yeah, I think that's probably the, the, the primary long-term effects is This has the exact opposite effect of what it's originally intended so one of the policies at my at the University of Alabama in the diversity equity inclusion is to breed a culture of inclusivity and more collaboration amongst um, the students and the faculty. And what you see is that people start to feel alienated. And when people start to feel alienated, they don't really wanna put themselves out there. They start to self-isolate. They kind of go mm. back with their tribe. And there's very little intercommunication, very little collaboration, people walk on eggshells. And so this really, the, the beauty of academia was bringing together all these diverse minds and having open discussions. And you know, we really tackle problems when we can look at it from all these different perspectives. And that's the exact it's having the exact opposite effect, you know the non underrepresented students feel like they're not on the same playing field, and they, they, you know, people are getting bumped up above them for not merit, not merit based reasons. The underrepresented group feels like their peers don't really think they had to work as hard and they're always kind of being judged that they got a pass, even if they didn't a lot of these students were some of the top of their class right they didn't even Mm -hmm. need any of these initiatives. What's really interesting in STEM is the Asian community in STEM, they don't fit in either group because they're not underrepresented in the STEM field. They are a minority as a population in the country. So they become kind of white adjacent in this whole yeah. DEI push in STEM because they don't really know where they fit. So they're kind of in limbo. And all it does is it starts to alienate folks. And I think yeah. that how we make advancements in science is through collaboration. And this is slowing that collaboration down. And then in the long-term effects for their, like cultural effects and and them getting a job, I'll give you a story that my father gives me. He's one of his most memorable students is an African-American student from a business college. He, my father was a business professor. And this gentleman went off to become an executive at a hospital and was very successful. And so they would stay in touch because the business community and the business school would always kind of interact. And so many years later, my father asked this gentleman what he felt at the time, what we called uh, affirmative action. And he was shocked because this gentleman said he hated it. And he said, no matter how much I succeed, no matter how many accolades the community has given me, I, when I walk into a room of my peers and other business leaders in the community, I feel that they don't think that I worked as hard as they did. No matter how hard I work, I can't get out from under this umbrella. And he was one of the top students. He, didn't, he, d- yeah. he never got any of this you know, extra help from any of these initiatives like Affirmative Action back in the day. And so this long-term effect, this cultural effect that people with a certain amount of melanin in their skin didn't have to work as hard mm. as other people, it has a lasting impact. And yeah. I think it it really hurts the way we view each other as a culture and as a society.
1: Well, not even if how not just only how you view each other. I mean, even if people weren't thinking that, that's an insecurity that's going to be deeply embedded. Um, And they're, you know, just in in the way that they think of themselves, that's something that even if they know they're top of the class and they have a lot of respect, you know, outward respect from their peers um, and they get accolades and all these things. And deep down, they don't actually know, they're not super sure if they actually earned everything or if they're there because they earned something because there's that type of insecurity where they're like, well, I know that there was an affirmative action program at the school that I went to. What does that mean for me? Was I included in that type of group or did I get in on my own? And a thought like that will continue to fester throughout your entire professional career. Um, And again, then you start to look at your peers as if they're looking at you the same way that you view yourself, where you're just not sure about your qualifications. Um, So I think there is a deep psychological effect there.
5: Yeah, interestingly, I've talked to, so I I, I put out a post on Twitter that I wanted to get input from the African-American community, whether the stuff that I was saying, and I gave this anecdotal story of my father, Whether they felt that way. And remarkably, I had people tell me that when they applied to jobs back in the day, they used to put BAA after their degree, which stood for before affirmative action. Oh, wow. Because they wanted to highlight that they earned all this stuff before any of these initiatives got in because they wanted to avoid that feeling that we're talking about. You know, and this gentleman was an executive in a hospital, very successful. And, you know, if he couldn't even get out from it under that, it's just, you know, I, I don't see this as being any having any sort of long-term benefits that that I've seen and and you know mm. uh, so far i've been asking for input and the majority of the input that i've gotten from the african american community is we want to be treated and appreciated for our merits and the how hard we work and not how much melanin is in our skin
1: right no that that's That makes a lot of sense to me we we've talked a little bit about this before Uh, our organization speech first has written an amicus brief because you know the the affirmative action cases in front of the supreme court right now uh with the students for fair admissions versus harvard and unc and um one one big argument that has always been attached to the precedent for affirmative action the legal precedent is that it it creates an environment where there's a robust exchange of ideas and that's kind of that's what their whole argument is really kind of based on And we can, I mean, we can look around right now and say, okay, there's definitely not a robust exchange of ideas on campuses currently. And in fact, it's getting worse every year, uh, especially since you started affirmative action going forward. But I think this isolation issue is also even more pronounced. And it's something that's actually not getting talked about, even in the legal arguments of why affirmative action is bad, is something that I think a lot of folks are overlooking because we probably don't know about it unless you've operated inside the academy and witnessed it, where you see students kind of isolating themselves and separating themselves into groups um, and then having those types of insecurities. Uh, I thought also that it was interesting that you talk so much about and the science field in general, because it's so much research and you're, you know, you present these hypotheses and you have to test them and you need to work and interact with people to such an extent and collaborate um if you're doing if yeah if there's an issue with isolation obviously that collaboration goes out the window or you're only collaborating with certain individuals that you feel comfortable around which means you are completely icing out the folks who actually might be able to contribute the most to whatever project you're working on so this is disconcerting for the future of science in America uh because we're supposed to be the leading country on some of this stuff and now you're kind of asking yourself well if this isn't happening in the academy if it's not happening at the student level is it going, that's going to just, my imagination is saying that it's like going to like go and echo throughout uh, the, the science field generally as, as everyone enters it.
5: I think it is. I think it's also, I, I've been shocked at how many emails I've gotten from the corporate world that say this is mm. happening in the corporate world as well. Yeah, that People are, are, you know, although, like you said, the intentions are to breed more collaboration. I, I get it. That's a noble cause. I think that the intent was likely good. I think a lot of the people that are involved in this stuff are good people. But me just making a post on Twitter highlighted the fact that you can't have these discussions because within an hour, there was academics in my in my university calling me a racist, and link online, hmm. socially, publicly, and linking me to anti-Semitic drawings that had occurred on campus, which I never. And talked what was about. The,
1: what was the Twitter post again? Can you can you remind us of that? So
5: this was a gentleman uh, that posted about um, just that I was throwing him under the bus and thanking him for being fired eventually. Be- he works in conservative media as a research as a, as a, a professor in conservative media, um, you know that this is a racist view I was leaving Alabama because it wasn't white enough, and then he said thanks for you know and then he linked me to some anti Semitic chalk writings that happened on campus I don't know if it happened that day or the day before uh-huh. or something like this I never spoke about any of that, but it just was, it was such a proof to me that you know I didn't I didn't wasn't pointing fingers at anybody I, I, I always was very clear that I think the people that do this are well intentioned. But I think that we're not actually investigating whether the outcomes are, are what the intent meant to be. And if it's not, we should start tweaking some things. It's just a natural yeah. way of going about the life in general. And the fact that that was enough to be attacked on you know, social media like that. It, it, w- it was proof and now the university has come to the department and I ha- i am not allowed to speak to any faculty. So they've wow. excommunicated me completely. Uh, they came to a faculty meeting. I don't. I didn't go. And um, they said, "Don't you know? Don't interact." um and so you know it's clear that they don't want to have these discussions
1: so in 2011 we'll jump forward to president barack obama because he issued something really really interesting and very controversial called the dear colleague letters so um, these were guidance reminding schools of their obligation to address sexual assaults as civil rights matters under title IX. so he was kind of there's this reminder keep in mind why this is so so unique the dear colleague letters circumvented the rulemaking process The rulemaking process, although very complex and tedious and bureaucratic, I don't want to get too much into it, it does create a a long process that can take over a year or maybe multiple years for the executive branch to be able to enact new laws and regulations that can be enforced directly by them. So that is obviously meant to be a long and tedious process because the real folks who are supposed to be making laws in this country are actually Congress. Not the president. So the president is involved with should be mostly involved in his administration. Should be mostly involved with execution of the laws, not with not with writing them. Um, So that is to prevent them, you know, obviously it's balanced power, right? To stop them from having all of this power to do that. So Barack Obama in 2011 issued Dear Colleague Letters, which circumvented that process of having to wait a year for, or so many months for comments to come in from the public to explain why they don't agree with this idea, why they don't agree with these laws or these policies. Um, Instead, he just sent this letter out urging and essentially influencing and giving Colleges, this, you know, kind of the key to the door that says, hey, you can come in and like broaden some of these policies, you can broaden some of these definitions a little bit to include such things as um, LGBTQ and, and various like gender like who's going to be considered a protected class now. Um, we will get into why that is a questionable uh, method or sorry, a questionable issue with regards to the Dear Colleague Letters, because the Biden administration brings it full circle. And that's exactly what they're attempting to do through the formalized rulemaking process here, um, which also, by the way, really pushed schools to create their own internal judicial process to investigate and try students on sexual harassment claims without real due process um, protections in place for those who are accused. So if you remember during the Obama years, there was a lot of sexual harassment, sexual assault allegations that were unfounded, um, that really, really damaged reputations. And in some cases, made students like completely leave leave the university, were expelled or suspended because of false accusations. And the university had not put any due process provisions in place to protect those who were accused. There was a lot of young men who went through a lot during those days. And it was really unfortunate to see. It led to suicides. It led to all sorts of serious issues on campuses where students, again, their reputations were completely and utterly destroyed for no reason at all. And it was a terrible time. So Trump came in and was like, all right, let's fix this. So in 2020, we call them the 2020 rules. um, He he did a couple of things. One was we're sitting that that letter. right? Um, He put a lot of protections in for due process as well as for the victims. So there was a lot of things that he did, but more specifically on the speech issue, he implemented what is called the Davis standard. It is a Supreme court precedent from a case called Davis versus Monroe County board of education um, that specified that in order for speech to be considered harassing conduct, it has to be so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive. That's the only way speech can be punished as harassment. Um, So it has to be all three of those things, severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive so that it can um, be properly uh, viewed as harassing conduct that basically stops students from having equal access to education. So that standard was really, really important because it allows universities to regulate harassment under Title IX while still being very much so in compliance with the First Amendment and protecting the rights of their students. So many universities, however, of course, Big Surprise, who hated Donald Trump, did re- re- they disregarded this federal guideline completely, and they actually didn't implement it in a lot of ways. They would say things such as, you know, keep the old Obama um, Obama standards, which was severe or pervasive, which means it could be a one-time incident, or that it could be multiple small things, like maybe a microaggression that happens over a series of time, and that it didn't necessarily have to be objectively offensive. There's a reason why the 2020 rule lists all three of those. Again, it is from a Supreme Court um, case where the court agreed that this was a good standard for when speech would be considered harassing conduct because it was a very high bar. And in this country, in the United States, we have agreed time and time again that there is no offensive speech exception to the First Amendment. We pride our, our freedom to speech over, we we find that more important over possibly offending someone, right? Because we understand how valuable that is to a democratic republic to be able to speak your mind and express your ideas um, on, on knowing that there's not going to be punishment for what you're saying and what you're thinking. Okay, so that brings me to some I want to talk a little about the cases that you mentioned, you mentioned 303 creative versus Alanis. Um, This is a really interesting case, because it does address this intersection. So a lot of folks think it is actually a religious liberty case, but really, it's more of a free speech case. But exactly. at the same time, there's still this kind of religious liberty um, undertone to it, right? And so mm-hmm. it kind of touches back on um, some of the Jack Phillips stuff in, in the state of Colorado. So let's talk a little bit about that and just kind sure. of why, I mean, you can even talk about a little bit why um, there is kind of a religious undertone, but I would be just more interested in getting our viewers to understand uh, what's going on in this case and why it's so right. important for free speech.
6: Right.
7: So you actually, to, to best understand <laughs> it, you do have to sort of start with Jack Phillips, right. um, you know, who was uh, owns and operates masterpiece cake shop um, there in Colorado uh, who was asked to bake a cake, um, a custom design, a cake for a same-sex wedding. Um, he adheres to a traditional uh, biblical view of marriage and could not in good conscience make that cake. He'd be happy to you know, serve them on other occasions, just couldn't be a part of their wedding. Um, that Then a complaint was filed against him, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Um, that case went all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court basically said that the state of Colorado had been biased against his religious beliefs and gave him um, a victory in that case. Um, but the the ink was barely dry on the decision <laughs> when somebody came back to his shop and asked him to make another cake that he okay. couldn't in good conscience make, took him back in front of the Civil Rights Commission. Um, he has basically been you know, in and out of court for almost a decade now, just trying oh to... Gosh get the state of Colorado to recognize that he has a right to run his business according to what his beliefs are. Mm -hmm. And any artist has the right to decide what message they're going to create. So with that backdrop, our client in 303 creative is Lori Smith, who does a web design business. And she had witnessed what had happened to Jack Phillips in Colorado. And she wanted to do custom websites for people's weddings, but she did not because she knew if she did one, she has the sort of the same views on marriage that he does. She knew that if she did one for a heterosexual couple, but could not for a same sex couple, she would end up in the same spot that Phillips is in. So she filed basically a lawsuit, a preemptive lawsuit, a pre-enforcement challenge to uh, what's going on in Colorado. And pre-enforcement challenges are are really a hallmark of civil rights litigation. They've been around for a long time. The basic premise is you shouldn't have to, violate an unjust law and, you know, be fined and or go to jail before you have a chance to challenge the basis of the law. So with that said, she, uh, she filed, as I said, sort of a a free enforcement uh, challenge. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. We argued it. Um, uh, Christian Wagner, our CEO, argued in December. We expect the decision probably in May or June. But as you said, the difference is this is really more a pure free speech argument. And therefore, the court's analysis will be likely more along the, the free speech precedents and, and the principles involved in a free speech case. Um, her reason for not wanting to speak this message may be rooted in her religious beliefs, mm-hmm. but even if it wasn't, um, the, the point is government can't force you to speak a message right. just like government can't censor you from speaking a message. Those are two halves of the same unconstitutional coin. The, the point is, Government telling a citizen you must say this, right? Um, and that goes for you know a win for her would protect everyone. Um, if you are, say, a, um, a video production studio, and somebody from the March for Life comes in and wants to hire you to document their participation in the March for Life, but you happen to be a pro-abortion activist, you shouldn't be forced to create that product. Um, And so a win for her would protect that person as well.
1: Yeah, let's talk more about that because Stanford University is an elite institution. Uh, You know, it's it's definitely up there with when people talk about like Ivy League schools, this is a very difficult school to get into very low acceptance rate. uh, And you have to have very, you know, supposedly very like strong academic background in order to get into a school like Stanford University. So, you know, this is supposed to produce highly intellectual and elite individuals uh, coming out of this school because that's the assumption that they kind of meet this certain bar when they come in. Now, do you think there is what are your thoughts on like what your intellectual development is on campus in these classroom discussions? Is there discussion happening? Are, what are topics that you are know for, you know for sure inherently that are pretty much off limits, right? What, what are things that you can't talk about? What's this kind of censorship that we're seeing? How bad actually is it on, on Stanford's campus?
0: Yeah, I can, I can remember like, you know, my freshman fall here at Stanford and, and coming here and wanting like those, you know, very, you know, rigorous intellectual debate in the classroom and, and you know, like you see in, in the movies or something, right, where it's just like you, you're, you're like exploring with your professor who's so knowledgeable and, and leading and facilitating this discussion, but um, that really wasn't happening in the classroom. And, and what I saw is that all students, like conservative and liberal students, were just too scared to to really like like speak up in the classroom because I mean why, why would they why why would they you know share their viewpoint if if it might get you know shouted down like um, what happened at Stanford Law School for those are the if those are the administrators running these um, these classrooms or these sessions um, it, it, the really the best option is really just to, to stay quiet and, and maybe share your opinion to your friend in your dorm room or something um, and so you know being at Stanford I think what I found early on was actually groups like um, us here at the Stanford Review, uh, you know, I remember the first meetings I came to, I was like, I, I was just blown away because I was like, what, what, this is like a higher, like, intellectual debate than I've heard in any of the classroom. And There's no, you know, professor here even facilitating this. This is just students who believe in the principle of free speech, free expression, and want to debate freely. And that's like exactly what I saw was students who were actually engaging in intellectual thought with one another because, you know, th- they weren't scared to say something wrong, but they were, they were, respecting you know someone's else right to say it and actually you know talk about these issues and, and 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 you know discuss them and that's what i think was so um meaningful impactful about those groups but it's it's unfortunate because we've really seen that debate kind of exiled from the classroom
1: yeah i mean it's it's really concerning uh especially when you're thinking about yes at the stanford review you're able to have these intellectual discussions but when, we're, when it comes to addressing some of the major societal and cultural issues that we're facing today in America, um, some of the stuff that's being said on the far left uh, needs to be addressed and it needs to be confronted. And the problem is, is even at the Stanford Re- Review, if you're having these intellectual discussions, are you actually engaging with the, the far left progressive ideas or are you engaging with more moderate versus conservative ideas? Uh, this is the issue with like when you, when we kind of step back and look at like, how is this running rampant all over the country and this kind of rhetoric and this messaging, it's not a majority of America who believes in a lot of this stuff, but for some reason, the messaging and the rhetoric is really amplified. And it's because there's no one who's willing to push back like in the classroom, uh, professors. I was just, um, speaking at SUNY Oswego last week and basically it was that we were told that professors, uh, basically are required, this is a state school, they're required to use everyone's pronouns and have and request everyone's pronouns on the papers. And they, you know, they when they say when they turn in the paper, make sure you put your pronouns. They are required to make these comments and to make sure everyone's using preferred pronouns. And when a student told me that they did not put pronouns on their paper, the professor pulled them aside later and says, hey, I noticed you didn't put your pronouns. You know, I'm secretly a conservative, and it was really refreshing to see you not feeding into this this vicious cycle. It's like, wow, that's terrifying. Professors are terrified. They don't want to have discussion anymore. They don't want to engage with students because they know that someone's going to come after them too, and their careers are not safe. So I'm curious if you guys have been able to find allies in classrooms at all uh, or with, with faculty, with other students who are more open-minded, or what your experience has been like in the classroom
4: one thing on faculty that i'd like to mention because i think it's vitally important is that though know, we have we have some faculty members and especially we're uh, blessed to have the hoover institution right on campus as well and so we have the ability to maybe some of the hoover fellows some of them teach classes that we're able to take i know i'm in a course with a hoover fellow this quarter and so he is certainly a conservative and that's fantastic but so one of the really concerning things is that you know many of, and this is true at Stanford. it's true across the country, I think that many of the professors that are conservative or even moderate leaning are much older. And whereas you know the younger professors, the ones that have been hired in the last 10 or 15 years are much more radical, much less open to you know real discussion, much more comp- like bought in completely to the woke ideology. And so, what we're going to see over the next fifteen to twenty years is, as these older professors continue to retire, they're replaced by younger and even more radical professors. I mean, I'm sure you all and your viewers have seen some of these like job postings, even at like schools that one would think are relatively conservative, like Ohio State, where you know they're looking for somebody who uh, has all sorts of you know leftist qualifications, basically, to be a professor. And so these are the people being hired. Whereas, you know, the good conservative professors, the moderate professors, the ones that we're able to engage with and that still do try to really facilitate good classroom discussion, they're on their way out just by virtue of you know retirement. And so that's really going to be a deep problem at a lot of universities over the next fifteen to twenty years that you know we probably didn't don't have much of an answer to, unfortunately.
1: And so, did the government get interested in what was going on on your campus, or did they start to suspect anything of? For sure, for
4: sure, because um,
8: the the student movement um, in in Venezuela, we have always. Well, I'm no longer a student, but the student movement usually has um, a great credibility among among regular Venezuelans and people. Mm-hmm. At least in the past, they used to attend a lot of to our uh, demonstrations. Um, I mean, because we were not like part of a political affiliation or anything. We were just students fighting for uh, right for our, our our right cause, right? And 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 a lot of people uh, saw in the student movement, uh, um, you know, in all of our activities, they saw a way to do activism, and, and a lot of people joined us. So definitely, the, many of them were interested in in what we were doing, right? So as I said, I I always I needed to bring people to help us to how to, 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 to teach you how to deal with these kind of, of things. Right. Right. As I said, communications or also how to deal with tear gas gases and how to, uh, uh, give, uh, you know, how to help someone who has been, I don't know, shot or, or has been injured during one of these uh, demonstrations or how to, how, what do you do yeah. if you, if you find yourself being persecuted by police, where do you go? I mean, stuff like yeah. that. It is, Completely different to what you see right. here, thanks God.
1: <laughs> yeah, so this is something that I find fascinating because I have thought about it a lot. You know, we we talk a lot about our First Amendment rights. Um, uh, uh, you know, in America, we talk about like free speech, freedom of press, um, and and to, you know, to petition and all of these things. So it's, it's like this concept around freedom of consciousness, religious liberty and all of these things. But additionally, we always we often in America talk a lot about the second amendment and we see that second amendment is kind of like that line that if it's ever crossed, then it's like we're in a position where we cannot defend ourselves against the government if they were to ever, you know, try to invade our homes or to kind of come into our communities and take over. And so that is an interesting mentality that is unique to to Americans specifically because of our history. But what I find interesting about your situation in Venezuela is that once you kind of determined that this regime has to go and that it's starving your people and that this is an existential threat, this is a life or death situation, like, where do you even start? Like, how do you even organize? Like you said, you have to to encrypt your messaging in order to organize properly, but you're just looking at this ginormous behemoth of a problem in front of you. And it's like, how do you even begin to, as a student even, how do you even begin to think about like next steps put a strategy in place like can you walk us through kind of like what are some of the things that you guys did what were your thought processes and like what you were attempting to do here
8: yeah sure when we were there we were always trying to follow i don't know if you have read this guy Yin sharp he has um uh he he has like a theory where that says that you can uh, overthrow these kind of regimes by doing nonviolent protests and nonviolent activities. And that's that's the, the what we decided to follow. First of mm-hmm. all, because we are just students, we were not right. able to engage yeah. in, I don't know, we were not going to conform a militia or something like that. Right. But uh, there were also good examples of of how this kind of nonviolent protests could actually lead to to this kind of regimes to collapse, right? Um, we were always trying to tr- to convince like, you know, military officers or police members who were doing the dirty job but were not necessarily being the ones who were receiving the most of the benefits from being part of a a check, of a tiering, right? We were always trying to do activities to try to, you know, convince them to switch sides. Mm -hmm. Of course, that didn't work out at the end, but that was always our focus, trying to do uh, peaceful protests to try to, um, you know, bring people from the inside of the regime to our cause, and let yeah. and let them, you know, to try to to make them see like, hey guys, you are in this ship as well. Your sub, your family, suffering as much as we are. Uh, we need you on our side. Stop following orders. Stop following uh, uh, the command of these people, because this is going to lead us not to nowhere. But uh, unfortunately, that that really didn't happen at the end.
1: I want to sort of like, What moment did you realize you needed to write? About this, like what were you seeing? What was going on in your life when you were in the United States that you're like, wait, I need to write another book, you know? Because I know your first book is all about your journey out of North Korea and your experiences there. But what made you want to write a second book, kind of talking about your experiences here in America?
9: So uh, when I got to America, of course, I, I imagined this to be the you know the land of the free, home of the brave, the shining Liberty Bell rings, where individuals are treat, treated as equal and the state determined to protect individual liberty above anything else. Unlike North Korea, where individuals do not matter unless you're part of big collective. So with that promise and expectation, I came to America and going to Columbia University. The reason I decided to write this book is because I was able to clearly see that writing on the wall, that path that these big universities are choosing to go down. It's in a way, it's like a really more concerning because they are doing it this in the name of inclusion and in the name of compassion right. they are redefining the word what it means to be inclusive and that's a scary time to be alive because these words don't mean the same thing anymore and what right. scared me to being from north korea is that the regime deprived us understand this concept of human rights liberty freedom love And now I'm coming to America where I was witnessing this revolution that was happening, how this even basic idea of inclusiveness was being redefined. And that was becoming like North Korea, the manipulation, the cancer culture, the mob, shutting down people for thinking differently. And I think that's really basically it because I was seeing the same tactics that was happening in North Korea here happening in America.
1: So what were some of those, so when you were, let's start when you were at Columbia University, um, what are some examples, um, I guess, of your education uh, in the classroom or various experiences with campus culture at Columbia that kind of reminded you of moments in your life under Kim Jong-il's totalitarian regime?
9: So above all, everything else, like the most thing that stood out to me was the anti-American, anti-Western sentiment in college. That in North Korea, literally, the regime blames for every aspect of failure in the system. So, instance, like if the electricity goes up, the regime said, Oh, because of American bastards. Because if you have flooding, Oh, because of American bastards. At Colombia, if there's a flooding happening, Oh, because of greedy capitalism and climate change causing it. If there's any injustice and poverty and war happening, it's because of a white man and then greedy capitalism. So that, in a way, it's like you know North Korea will copy the Colombia, Colombia copied North Korea. (laughs) The conclusion to whatever explanation you can come up to is the same conclusion, and where it goes down to where only solution is that tearing down the constitution, tearing down the American system of government, and we need to rebuild the nation in the name of equity, which means a collectivism. Right. And I think that's when I really understood. This is not something just you are entertaining some subset ideas. This is that they have a clear goal to educating these brightest people in the world, in a way, right, that people going to Colombia is one of the smartest people in America. Mm-hmm. And they bring them to believe that the only goal is going to be dismantling the American system.
10: In 2019, so March 1, 2019, we launched a new project called criticalrace.org. That was an outgrowth in many ways of the post-George Floyd fallout. So what happened was after George Floyd was killed, we knew about all the riots and all that sort of stuff, but there was also this very intense push on campuses to embody, quote unquote, anti-racism theory, critical race theory throughout the campus, including at Cornell. Hmm. So post-George Floyd, among other things, there was a massive attempt to get me fired uh, for criticizing BLM. Again? <laughs> Again, you know, but this was very organized, okay? Oh, wow. Alumni, students, faculty, everybody, a real pylon. But I, I survived that, but one of the- I things- can't believe
1: you survived because these yes, I see so many tenured professors that get fired for even yeah. smaller things than this, but-
10: yeah. It was, uh, so, but as to relates to criticalrace.org, in uh, June of 2020, the president of Cornell assigned Ibram Kendi's how to be an anti-racist as the recommended summer reading for the entire university. And, uh, that doesn't mean you had to do it, but right. it would be recommended. It's, it's the book of the summer. They do that every summer and it would be the subject of student seminars, voluntary seminars in the fall when uh, people come
1: back. Interesting. It okay. was available
10: for free. I'd never heard of him. I'd never heard of the book and, uh, I read it because it was free if you had a Cornell ID, and it was really horrifying. I mean, it basically, it's racial retribution. That's what it is. It's getting even, and it's current discrimination is justified because of past discrimination. Uh, And then in July, the president of Cornell announced that we were going to become an anti-racist campus. She started an anti-racism initiative, and that would be immediate trainings for staff and, there were, and she was proposing faculty and student trainings on anti racism, but that had to go through the faculty senate first. So I'm um, watching this, I'm saying, this guy Kendi. And so we started to do research at the website. And I had somebody do some research. And I said, you know, this is bigger than I thought it was. I I'd never heard of him, but apparently a lot of people have. So I was going to do an op ed or an article. And we just accumulated so much that in, the, in September of 2020, uh, several hundred Cornell faculty, students, and staff signed an open letter to the president of the university as to what they thought her anti-racism initiative should look like. And it was truly horrifying, I mean, explicitly illegal uh, right. hiring and promotion based on race. And that's when we said, you know what, this thing's everywhere. This is insane. We're, we we got to start a new website. We've got to take all the data we've collected about what's going on in universities. And we need to put it in a format that people can easily understand.
1: And so we did
10: that and we spent the fall. So criticalrace.org was launched in early February 2021 uh, with 220 colleges and universities. It's a database. It's just what the colleges say they're doing. It's not... They love to brag about this stuff.
1: They do. They're very <laughs> yeah, proud of these initiatives. Yeah, They are so
10: proud. So we had researchers who would just spend all day going to university websites. Not as easy as it sounds because they can be quite complex. You've got the university website, then mm-hmm. the college website, then the department website, then the professor's website. So it's not like just click a button and you've got the information. And we right. created an intera- a database which generates an interactive map of the country. You can hover over your state. You can click on your state, you have a drop down menu of your school. And these every single, so we started with 220 colleges and universities. And um, we thought this would be a nice little project. I was fortunate enough to be able to announce the project on Tucker Carlson tonight um, at 8.30 PM on February 2nd, I think it was. By midnight, we had 400,000 visits to the website. By the next million. We we touched on something that was bigger than what we even knew
1: because like you said this this kind of stuff has been going on for at that or at that point over a decade and people could feel it and it's like they they are they're hearing it in the red era. Yeah. and even though it's not obviously people are calling it critical race or critical race theory yeah. you can sense that all of this racial division is festering and it's getting worse and worse and worse so people see that it's happening they just needed someone to help them answer what it was and how it was in practice
10: yeah, and and so we, and that's become a big project of ours. We now are up to over 500 colleges and universities, and we've created uh, specialty oh. databases. So we have um, elite private K through 12, the prep schools, the fancy prep schools that people go on to work for yeah. the New York Times and politics yeah. and corporations. Uh, so we've covered the top 50 ranked schools, and we've done for them what we did for the colleges and universities. And it's actually worse in private K through 12. Oh,
1: I imagine so. That's a fantastic resource for for parents though. That's great. It
10: is. It is. And then we did medical schools. So we have covered the top 100 ranked medical schools. And as bad as it is at the other places, it's worse in medical schools. It's truly a travesty what's happening to the medical education. We covered the the military academies. And the newest one we rolled out are veterinary schools. Uh, so we took the top 10 ranked veterinary schools and it's deeply embedded there and and so we now have several maps we have several databases every single piece of data there is sourced with both a live source and an archive source because things disappear sometimes just people redo the website sometimes because they don't want the attention but everything's there and you can go through and we have people who spend their days updating that because so we're now up to over 700 right. institutions covered and it's become a fantastic resource and the, the beauty of it is the data is just the data we're just telling you what they say right
1: you're not okay. you're not creating you're not drawing any conclusions for anyone they're just you're just putting the links to the web pages and what they say on
2: and the clinical faculty at the university are not tenured but i was as okay. secure okay. as a faculty member you know could have been there and actually tenure would not have protected me in that circumstance mm-hmm. they they still would have uh claimed that they could legally and justifiably fire me for alleged non-compliance with the vaccine mandate after turning down my medical exemption twice which was signed by my physician so there there, there were efforts on my part um to negotiate with them but they were in no mood to negotiate so they had worked out Deals with other faculty members that were declining the vaccine to have them work from home, for example. That opportunity was never offered to me, even though at the time mm-hmm. about two-thirds of, of my work was being done remotely, telemedicine, right. all the teaching, the university, th- this was not by my choice, the university had, had moved the teaching to remote only. And so it just so happened that, you know, I was willing to go part-time, I was willing to go on sabbatical for two years right. until the pandemic was over. Um, but again, that the the accommodations that they offered to other faculty members they were not going to offer to me. And so they used that policy as a pretense.
1: right. To, and it kind of fire begs, me. Yeah, and it begs the question if if you're a conservative faculty member or even someone who's just willing to dissent, right? Yeah, does tenure even really matter no. anymore? Does it really even exist for you anymore?
2: No, no, it doesn't. They could They can create uh, policies that you one can't avoid violating without violating one's conscience. And then use, you know, the wow. the alleged violation of a policy to override whatever tenure protections you might have, you know, claim that you're not fulfilling your end of a contract, which, you know, usually has some clause in there about following, following all of the university policies. So whether those are DEI policies or, you know, what have you, the universities are going to find ways around yeah. tenure now. So tenure doesn't protect you. I think the only thing that... Um, That ultimately is going to protect you is uh first of all speaking your mind and then second of all uh taking legal action when the university attempts to retaliate um there's just a there's a lot of fear at the university and actually the worst form of censorship is not the explicit um sort of obvious and egregious forms of retaliation Mm -hmm. the worst form of censorship at the university is simply the university climate and the, the the sort of air that you breathe and the subtle ways in which people internalize norms and begin hmm. as a consequence of that, whether they're students, faculty, administrators, they begin to self-censor.
1: Right. Right. right? Absolutely. And that's what we see with the students for sure.
2: That's, that's, that's the real danger um, because University of California actually has a robust free speech policy. And so if they if they do a direct attack upon your free speech rights, um, you know you go back to this policy which was created in the seventies back when liberals cared about free speech, um, and uh, you know progressives and and classical liberals sort of had still had certain norms that mm-hmm. they shared in common, and uh, and you could find some degree of protection in a lot of university policies related to free speech if they do a direct sort of frontal assault on shut up you're not allowed to say that what have you but uh, when the university climate creates a situation in which people can't say what they think or even worse when you go further down that road that the questions that they should be asking simply no longer occur to people yeah then you're really then you're really in a kind of prison, the worst form of prison. And this is in fact how totalitarian regimes right. work.
1: Yeah.
7: Lori's case is a pure free speech case. You know, because it is about government coercion mm-hmm. of speech. Now her her reasons for not wanting to speak that message are rooted in her faith. But from for the for the legal analysis, it is strictly on on free speech grounds. Um and it, you know that that's it's, it's sort of, um, it, it can get a little convoluted, you know, but the, you know, for, you know, legal nerds, it's like <laughs> there's a, there's, it's almost like two separate bodies of constitutional law. If you're talking about a religious liberty, there's a religious liberty analysis in this line of cases. If you're talking about a pure free speech claim, it's a free speech analysis, it's these line of cases. But um, the overlapping protection mm-hmm. um, is right there in the First Amendment. You know the the free exercise clause and then the free speech clause, um, because you know the founders were very very keen to protect the proper role of religion in a free civil society, and the free exercise of religion, being able to live according to your faith in all mm-hmm. aspects of your life, um, including talking about it, or including you know the decision not to to say something mm-hmm. that conflicts with those religious beliefs Um, because it's very hard to live according to your faith. If you can never say anything about it.
11: Right.
2: Um, Yeah.
7: And so that, that overlapping protection, you know, if there's, if there's a case where the speech in and of itself is religious, then it has, you know, double protection. It's got free speech protection. It's got free exercise protection. This was a, you know, what most constitutional scholars would say is a more pure speech analysis. Um, Even though her reasons personally for not wanting to speak that are rooted in faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they wanted that overlapping protection, like I said, because they wanted to preserve the proper role of religion in in a free society. They did not want there to be an official state-sponsored church. That's the establishment clause. But they wanted religion to flourish um, because they knew that for men to be free, they have to be good. Right. Um, right all of human history has shown you know like our our constitution is founded on this idea of ordered liberty. If you just have order and no liberty, you have tyranny. If you only have liberty and there's no order to it, you have chaos, which kind of eventually leads back to tyranny, and the French Revolution sort of proved them right on, that. yeah, um it
1: did. yeah,
7: so the that that's the role they were trying to preserve for religion. Uh, not to coerce anybody, not to you know be compel anyone to support a state church or you, know, you don't have to be religious, you don't have to go to church, you don't have to do any of these things. But that um, that for free for free men to live amongst other free men, they they require a baseline of morality not to use that freedom to abuse someone else or to infringe on someone else. And that sort of common baseline of morality is where. Is what they expected the role of religion to be? That this is where we learn how to how to treat other people. You know how to be good people, to be good enough to be trusted with freedom. Right. Um, because every time you know throughout human, human history, you know if people are just free to do whatever they want. The strong will oppress the weak. Yeah, you know, someone will take something from somebody else. Um, those who get into power will do terrible things to stay in power. Um, and do terrible things with that power. That's because the
1: power form. becomes the ultimate end, and that point in that, and that, and that exactly. Necessity. And what ends yeah. up happening is you use all means necessary and all means justify the ends in order to to keep that exactly out. right. Yeah. yeah.
7: They knew that is the fallen nature of man,
1: right?
2: Mm-hmm.
7: That they were very, very aware of that. Adam said our constitution is written for a moral, religious people, wholly inadequate to the government of any other, right? Um, yeah. So well, that's why there's that overlapping protection. And that's why, even though this case is a pure free speech case, people did probably initially kind of mistake it for a religious liberty case because her beliefs on marriage are rooted in her faith.
1: And you kind of wonder sometimes if it was an intentional mistake on the parts of those who are trying to um, create a different narrative around what this case represented because they themselves are threatened by religious liberty and in the United States. they were they're threatened by the more kind of moral concept of religion in that it's important and valuable and absolutely necessary to society. Um, There's many in this country now who are very, probably don't represent a majority, definitely don't represent a majority, but um, are a small minority that like to speak about religion as if it's detrimental to American society and culture, um, and then therefore would be totally okay jettisoning the Religious Liberty um, Clause of the the First Amendment. Um, And in that case, all the other clauses of the First Amendment, because they are Connected to the concept of like freedom of conscience and being able to espouse your unbelief. Your Can you tell us what your story is, why you felt the need to speak out, and kind of how you came up with this idea for this poem?
12: So, I first started speaking out when I started secondary school. And um, so, I started secondary school in September 2021. And so, this was when I, I was 12 years old. And within a matter of weeks, The teachers had started shoving TQ plus propaganda and gender gender ideology on us. I remember one class where we were fed all this terminology that was just so clearly untrue. Stuff about gender identity and how your sex is signed at birth. And I asked questions about it. I was just genuinely curious how my teacher could believe this and teach this to me when it's just so clearly nuts. But um so I raised the issue of men being put into women's prisons and he honestly could not answer my question. He in the end he ended up just telling me to do a word search because he could not answer any of my questions. Wow. But, so the week after this class I got pulled out of class by my science teacher and she told me Uh, my science teacher told me that sex is a spectrum and that being a man or a woman has nothing to do with your reproductive system so yeah she pulled me into class originally to tell me off for asking these questions and then when I retaliated she told me that just clearly unscientific facts well not facts but and did you push
1: back on some of the facts that she that she presented to you or was it at that point you weren't really sure if it was worth pushing back yet
12: um, I did. So, yeah, she pulled me out of class and told me that I'd made these offensive comments. And, well, I told her that I had every right to say them, you know, like, mm-hmm. like even if it was offensive, I'd still have a right. And anyway, it's just, it's reality. Like, how is that? <laughs> right. And yeah. So then... they're
1: forcing you to, to question your own reality, to change your terminology. And then now they're telling you that this is offensive to the point where you actually could get in trouble.
12: Yes. So anyway, that conversation didn't go as she had planned because she thought I'd be horrified that (laughs) I'd been offensive. But I wasn't. So a few weeks later, I got pulled out of class again by another teacher. Mm -hmm. And I was told that if I continued to make these offensive comments, more drastic action would have to be taken. It was just outrage that they thought they could tell me what I was allowed to say and what I wasn't allowed to say like it was just so dystopian it was unreal November in 2022 my mum heard about this um conference in Dublin called women's space to speak and it was about gender ideology and we thought we'd go it was just there that I got the inspiration to write this poem and start speaking out even more so back, so with the school, when they
1: said that there, there's going to be serious repercussions to you questioning, because at the beginning you were simply just inquiring, you were just asking them to explain their logic. Yes, and that's they honestly couldn't. all
12: I wanted. I wasn't trying to trip <laughs> them up or tie them in knots. I honestly just wanted to know.
13: And she said, you know, we're publishing all of these stuff, all of these articles that are pro-Lea. We need to have at least one the opposing. Mm-hmm. So I wrote this article and there's I get teamed up with a different editor that's not my friend and they keep deleting lines out of my article they add lines in it's this back and forth where I'll try to put something back in and they'll tell me that's that's way too offensive and the one of the lines notably that they told me was far too offensive was I said if we continue to let this happen younger generations of girls are going to be discouraged from competing in sports and they said that's that's really harsh and that's really dramatic you can't you can't have that And I was, okay. (laughs) And then there was at one point where they said they wanted to publish it, but they had to delete the last paragraph that I wrote altogether. And I said, okay. So we keep going back and forth with these edits. And it was, and it just, and honestly, by the time it got to the stage that they wanted to publish it in, it was barely even my work anymore. And I was just so disheartened by the entire experience, but I was like, okay, it's fine. You know what? Like I'm willing to take anything that just shows that somebody objects to this, right? Right. Even if it's the softest piece I've ever written in my entire life, somebody needs to just have an objecting opinion. So we go and then they publish it. And I noticed that they made even more edits after the last version I approved of, which is oh, really? here and over there. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They they took out even more and they changed a few things around because they wanted it to match their narrative. So long story short, it's up. Um, And then three hours later, just about it was, it was gone. It was vanished. Three hours. Wow. Yes. And
1: it was gone. So you knew it was up because they just like kind of alerted you. So you had seen it on, on the screen and then you tried to say, yeah, so, and it just so
13: to give, to give the visual. Yeah. They published the article at about three 30, four o'clock in the afternoon. And I had just gone out of the pool and I had class. So I had a class that started at three 30. Um, so I would have to leave practice a little bit early and I'm in my locker changing for class and I'm like, Oh, it's up. And I okay, and I scroll through and notice edits. And I put my phone down, I change, and I run off the class. I go to class, I leave class, and it's gone. So, in that time, I'm sitting literally sitting in in lecture. And in this, and I remember well, class I was taking negotiations, I remember this so clearly, so vividly.
1: And I was sitting there, and I was like, oh, it's gone. <laughs> that's amazing. And did you anticipate, was there any kind of warning that you're, they're like, oh, we may not actually get to post this. Did anyone say that to you during the editing process? Um, Or did you kind of anticipate that there might be, that the university would take it down? Or was this just a total surprise?
12: I,
13: I think I was a little bit, I think, I, so here's the thing is at every single stage of this entire situation, I've always, I'm a hopeful person for some right. weird reason. And so I always had hope and I I had a hope it would stay up. I did. And I, And so anyway when they pull it the editor who was working with me he didn't even want to return my calls i'm harassing this guy and i'm texting him a million times and so when he eventually called me he told me that half the staff was threatening to quit over it being up and they couldn't have a not staffed newspaper so they had to remove it wow and then they they kept on making up a bunch of things so then like eventually later when i can i confronted them about it and so actually funny story my mom ended up calling the newspaper and they had a meeting and they told my mom oh well we don't allow anonymous articles because I I was anonymous but they do and then they changed so then we were like here's like four other articles that have been written by anonymous people and they said oh we don't allow you to name other students by name in your articles or like you do and they said well we can't have you like they kept changing it's kind of like moving the goalpost, right? right this is why it wasn't allowed, or this sentence is why it's not allowed, and it's it's this and this and this and this, and it's just, never mind, you're not allowed to be there at all.
6: Well, on the 4th of July in 2020, I posted a picture of myself in front of the White House, and I said that I was proud to be an American, and I thanked those who had served in the military and our forefathers uh, for giving us the freedoms and liberties that were intended for us on July 4th in 1776.
1: And for those of you who are not um, with us on video, and you're just with us on audio. Um, it is just a picture of Stevie standing in front of the White House. Um, there's no flags, no special colors painted on the White House at the time. He's just wearing a Nashville Soccer Club sweater and smiling, and literally just saying, "Basically, Happy Fourth of July, guys. We are only here because they fought for what they believed in, and essentially, that's that's what started this whole thing. Um, and again, very neutral image. <laughs> so go go ahead, Stevie.
6: Well, within 24 hours, there was a change.org petition created to impeach me as student body president because the liberal groups on campus were saying that I was celebrating a covertly racist holiday was their exact language they used uh, because the 4th of July celebrates a racist and evil country is their argument. Uh, there were hundreds of comments on that Instagram post. You know, I, I've always had a public Instagram account. I've never hidden who I was. I've, even when I ran for office, you know, I, I, I never hid who I was. I was very upfront and open with people. So I had nothing to hide. And so there's still, to this day, hundreds of negative comments. Some are saying, go kill yourself. You know, others are saying I'm a terrible person and, you know, I'm the worst thing ever. Uh, they compare me to all these awful people throughout history because I love America.
1: Wow. Um, and Duke Also, I'll go ahead and put this up on the screen for those who are watching video. But for those who are just listening, I'm just going to read quickly, Stevie, the description of how they, how they describe what you did. So we already saw the picture of the post. Remove Stevie Giorno from SGA presidency. Why this petition matters. Stevie Giorno refuses to acknowledge the racism surrounding the 4th of July and posted a very, all caps, covertly racist post on the 4th. We might not always agree, but racism is not a political issue. It's a human rights one. This is not the leadership Belmont deserves. Demand better, Belmont. Remove Stevie Giorno from SGA president and help give Belmont student leadership the representation that represents all students and unapologetically stands against racism. Americans have taken notice of the reactions of our university leadership and our college students who are in some cases actually defending the actions of Hamas and continue, and they continue to advocate for more actions by Hamas. So as shocking as this may seem to many who have not been following the sentiments and culture issues on college campuses, I think David and I are honestly not too surprised if you'll recall previous episodes of Well Said, we've covered the anti-Semitism found in DEI departments on campuses across the country, as well as trying to understand why college campuses have been overtaken by various political movements such as the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Initiative against Israel. So while trying to understand how these political movements are able to grow and ferment on college campuses, we must first understand how and why traditionally liberal institutions are susceptible to anti-Semitic sentiments to begin with. So thank you, David, for joining us. I'm looking forward to having this conversation and and really digging into um, to the history here and the origins of some of these thoughts. So let's let's get into this. Um, Let's start talking about it. First, I want to ask you kind of like what initiated the writing of this book like what did you see happening on campuses or in institutions that drove you to um to really uh want to not only put it down in a book but also start to realize that no one else was seeing this and that you needed to write about it
14: yeah so you know I've been actually on the center left side of the Jewish world my entire life I've run Jewish advocacy organizations have stood up for certain ideas around, uh, around you know criminal justice reform and church-state separation and you know same-sex marriage and and the like, and so I watched with interest what happens in my own backyard, my own ideological backyard, and going back even more than twenty years ago, I started to see some serious warning signs on the left. Um, I, um, in, in the late 1990s, I was a young staffer at that time. Um, I uh, I was part of this leadership group and uh, we had a multi, we had two days of multiculturalism. And in those days that, you know, there was no DEI at, at, in those days, it was just multiculturalism. And I was kind of psyched for it. I thought it was going to be an interesting couple of days. And I was stunned at what actually happened. Um, they started out by saying that racism equals prejudice plus power. And I thought to myself, wait a second, I always thought that racism was just animus towards another minority group. And yet here we were told that, you know, that this was the new definition of racism. And that um, meant for me that Jews would be associated with people in power. And so therefore they couldn't be victims of of racism. And that um, any group that's perceived as being powerless will not be viewed as a perpetrator. And, um, and I wrote about it even in the early 2000s, and I warned the Jewish community, if this stuff catches on, we're going to be in trouble. But mm. I also worried that it was illiberal in a basic sense. I warned colleagues about it over and over. In 2016, I think I wrote the first major sort of popular um, op-ed about intersectionality in the Jewish community. And I warned that if this idea, as it's being presented now, continues to catch on, we're going to be in trouble. And the, the the response was just fast and furious. Uh mm. there were like nine op-eds condemning me for my my views on it. And I thought, okay, wow, I've struck a nerve here. And um, and and then of course there was the you know, the great reckoning after George Floyd. And I started to see really deep-seated examples of this within the Jewish community itself. And that made me even more nervous. And I left in um February of 2021, and shortly thereafter, founded the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, pushed back against this ideology in the Jewish world. And at that very time when I started in May 2021, there was a war with Hamas, and I realized that Israel was being given no benefit of the doubt at all. In previous conflicts, like Israel usually had like three days in which the mainstream press would give it the benefit of the doubt say, okay, of course it has to respond to Gaza rocket fire. But then of course there would be some casualties and Israel would be reined in and the like. That didn't happen in 2021. I knew that something else was foot. And so that's why when I knew I had to write the book.
1: And I I think... So can we let's connect this to, to Israel, too, because I think what there were there's also a lot of confusion is yes. the connection of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. And in most cases, the overlap that is, in my opinion, it anti-Zionism is used as a way to cloak anti-Semitism so people can get away with expressing that sentiment. Yes. But I'm curious what your thoughts are and how the how this leftist progressive ideology connects those two. Uh, to yes. one
14: another. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because there's another dimension here that also took shape in the late 1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, after Israel won decisively in 1967 Six Day War, the Soviet Union uh, launched an, um, an anti-Zionist campaign in order to discredit Zionism. Um, and um, they actually invented a field called Zionology, which was how Zionism was this oppressive ideology and the like, and they they wrote books about it, highly popular books, oh, yeah. and th- that then led to you know sort of the Zionism is racism idea, and, and that was popular in post-colonial circles too, so they influenced post-colonial thought as well, which is really what we're talking about here. It's like wokeism mm-hmm. is... Post-colonialism applied domestically—it's this idea that the like the global north oppresses the global south, or that you know the once colonial powers are still engaging in their colonial project through ideas and knowledge and dissemination and the like. So, um, so you had really a, a deeply influenced uh, left that came out of the Soviet Union and the Soviet experience and uh, their attacks on Zionism, and and that's why I think. Zionism and Israelis are viewed as sort of the paradigmatic oppressors, right? They're mm-hmm. the, they're viewed as a colonial project. They can't see them otherwise. So th- that's deeply embedded. And there, in some ways, Zionism is almost like the key litmus test for being part of the intersectional left. Like, you, you have to agree with us on that one question if you're going to be yeah. part of the club. And, um, and so Israel is just swept into that worldview. Um, and is treated as the perennial oppressor. And if you start out believing that, then you cannot believe anything else. Like, it, 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 so that's why you know, the, the professors of ethnic studies, like there's something called the Coalition for Ethnic Studies, Liberated uh-huh. Ethnic Studies, they were sending out memes before the blood had even dried on the pavement in Israel. Yeah. They were sending out memes you know, that were praising the Palestinian resistance, which is a code word for Hamas's murderous terrorist attacks. Um, and it comes out of that ideology like Israel must be the oppressor because it is always the oppressor. It is the colonial power that is oppressing them. So anything that the press does is resistance and anything the oppressor does, no matter how humane, is oppressive.
11: We have to allow, and I think this is a part of liberalism, we have to allow people to have and share bad ideas because that is how you learn. So yes, I mean, there are some things that are just truly black and white, of course, you know, terrorism is bad. <laughs> that is, you know, killing Great example. Is bad, yeah. Right. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, I think that both the right and the left, we, there's a lot, we, we have become very rigid, I think on both sides of the spectrum of a assigning what idea is good or bad, And then be not shutting it down because this is how children learn. They have to be able to be able to have a bad idea, whatever that may be, and to be able to discuss it without being shut down. Now, it doesn't matter what side you're on. It's just easier to be quiet. Mm -hmm. It is just easier to be quiet and that we're doing a disservice to our kids, even if some of the stuff they come out with are bad ideas. Those are all teaching moments. Yeah, yeah. And 100%. so, yeah. I mean, that's 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 where I'm at. I I really want our inst uh, eventually our institute to have that curiosity. I think we're missing curiosity. A lot of it, our curiosity is just dampened because we're too scared. Of what may happen on either side. You know, we're not yeah. allowed to have and then immediately, and this partly is obviously with our new, you know, social media platforms, you know, it's so easy to cancel
1: someone, but we're not like we we have just killed curiosity. Do you know what what your genuine, genuine opinions are just on what you know what you foresee with regards to social media issues. Oh my gosh, I could go down so many rabbit holes there. <laughs>
11: yeah. I have so many personal yeah. opinions on it. Um let me like turn that question a little bit to let, you know, just go back to ILV and what I, what we're trying to do Mm -hmm. with regards to the social media landscape. So you'd asked earlier about what, you know, where we're educating. So we've got several courses where we are uh, testing out a new thing called the Liberal Values Laboratory. The first one is on November 14th at 7 p.m. Eastern. And again, everyone can find, we've got a calendar on our website, ilvalues.org. And this is Dr. Elizabeth Spivak, who is a psychologist, will be running this. And it's it's basically heuristics around thinking. So this is more for adults, right? And then, and trying to, identify where our thinking gets muddled and identify our biases so that we can better have these conversations whether it's on social media or in person but going back to social media our big thing is so in addition to this laboratory we're going to have a monthly probably starting in the new year liberal values concept conversation we're going to have we've got several courses lined up including one on communism with Ken Pope who I know is your right. friend
1: with the victims of yeah. communism yeah he's been on the show a couple times we like a couple him. times yeah <laughs> I, yeah I'm,
11: I'm having great time working with him on creating this course so i'll keep you posted when that comes up too yeah. and again these are going to be more for adult audiences that care about liberalism uh you know and and, and they're you're know, free to drop in obviously donations are accept are accepted <laughs> and, and desired but whatever we, we we want to make this we want to make this open to everyone so anyways let me get back to the social media sorry yeah. there's a lot of like oh no, on- yeah absolutely yeah what I'm trying to do with ILV, of course, we're on social media. You have to be on social media. right? But what I'm trying to do with ILB is create a community around conversation. So our events are mostly going to be over Zoom or over another platform where we can actually look each other in the eye and have these conversations. And we we are going to start doing, we've got our first conversation on Twitter spaces, I guess now X spaces, that yeah. is with Dr. Brandy Shufatinsky uh, on anti-Semitism. And that will be mm. November 7th at 8 p.m. Eastern. And so we're going to test out Twitter spaces to see if that is a place where we can have an open and honest and, 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 and lively discussion and, and even Thanks. debate. I mean, debate is not a bad word. Uh, but I'm just not sure. I'm not sure, Sharice, where we are with with social media. If we I stay away from the two hundred and four, you know, outside of posting the stuff that we're doing, I keep ILV and my own personal stuff away from the actual banter. I, you, there's no way that you can have a conversation in however many characters And I guess if you're a blue check now, you can have more than two hundred and eighty. But that's where we're. that's where I think uh, social media kills liberalism. And so to the extent that we have to adapt and this is our new world and I'm all about, I am about progress and, and, and I am about adapting, but I'm not quite sure how we're going to adapt. We're going to try out Twitter spaces or X spaces and see if that's a lively place for conversation. But ultimately what we're trying to do is create a community of people who are looking each other in their eyes and having these discussions and trying to shape how these discussions are had in a productive way. Meaningful way. So I know I didn't really answer too much about social no, media. Personally, yeah. I, I mean,
1: it's a I, tricky I, one.
15: Yeah. It's a tricky one. Again, you know, I don't think universities inherently have an obligation to speak up on these things. But the problem is that they do have these policies or they do have a practice of condemning like microaggressions and so forth, shutting down the, universe. you know, there are all these cases over the last few years where someone thought they saw something that looked like a noose and it just yeah. turned out to be like, you know, something happened to look like a news, but was there for some other reason or whatever. And yeah. they shut down the university and had teach-ins and so forth because this um, suggests violence against black people, even though is uh, you know, either a hoax or not really a news. And then people chant "globalized intifada" and or surround the Hillel building in a threatening manner and uh, chant, you know, from the river to the sea, uh, even when the Hillel group is not specifically even doing anything about Israel, and then they don't do anything, that's problematic because I think there are two aspects to federal civil rights law in this regard. One aspect is that you're not allowed to, uh, you can't permit a hostile environment for a protective group, which includes uh, Jews, at least as an ethnic group, if not a religious group, because the law doesn't cover religion. Uh, But uh, and that is, you know, that's, that's kind of somewhat dangerous and problematic because it leads to the kind of policies uh, that you that you guys are fighting, which is, you know, we don't want microaggressions that might lead to a hostile environment. But I think the second thing, which has gotten less attention, although I've seen some complaints have now been filed on this, focusing on this particular issue, is that. Regardless of what policies are in place, Jewish students are entitled to equal protection uh with regard to how the university handles things. So if the university is going to shut down over an alleged noose that wasn't, but isn't going to do may even make a statement when people are chanting genocidal threats or uh or, or you know um saying nasty things to Jewish classmates and so forth, that raises the issue of not what should the policy be, which is a separate issue with regard to uh, hostile environment aggressions? But what, when do you decide that there is sufficient hostility to a particular group of students to to act? And if the standard. The barrier is much higher to saying something or doing something on behalf of Jewish students than it is to other protected minority groups. That, I think, is a violation of civil rights law by itself, because now you're discriminating against the Jewish students. You're saying merely, uh, for example, a professor merely uttering the N-word in class when quoting a a case, right, which gets strong condemnation, even though it wasn't meant in any kind of derogatory way. Here's what the person said in this hate speech case, should we allow it? And they actually say the word.
1: Um, But there's... There's a lot of kind of talk around around this with 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 white um, uh, basically anti-racism or racism against white people. So I'm kind of curious if you have any thoughts on that, um, or if you've seen any uh, any uh, kind of legal questions come up around it.
15: Sure. Well, look, um, as the other David Bernstein, I'm sure, related to you, the woke ideology is in fact uh, behind a lot of this, and it's a particular it's a completely fair comment to say that the hostility to Jews is. To a large extent, uh, just a manifestation of hostility to anyone except for the groups that the woke left has decided deserve to be protected. I mean, in fairness to the Jews among whom I am, uh, you know, when you're 2% of the population uh, and you've suffered violence and your synagogues and schools and community centers have to have armed guards because there have been terrorist incidents, you're going to be more sensitive to people chanting genocidal uh, slogans and so forth than if you're a white male and a white woman and you're like combined 60% of the population and you know so forth. I mean there's a different level of vulnerability. So of course uh it's easier to shrug off uh someone saying, you know, we don't like white people uh because what are they going to do about it when whites are 60% of the population we don't like Jewish people and we're kind of violent about it. That's actually uh seems like much more of a threat. But you know, I think what I think one thing that has that was obvious to me. I mean, I you know, I'm a, I've always been on team woke is bad. So uh, it's not like I've converted, but some people who weren't really paying that much attention, you know, they're like, oh, well, what's wrong with diversity, inclusion, equity? These are all nice concepts. You know, the right wing is just complaining because they don't want to deal with our history. This and that. So I think one thing that we need to um, recognize is that DEI offices are not about diversity equity and especially not inclusion <laughs> uh you won't see any dei office anywhere ever say boy we have a couple of students this year coming from uh, the rural south from evangelical backgrounds and they're probably going to feel really uncomfortable being here at brown university with you know <laughs> everything goes on at somewhere like brown university so we should you know work with them help them make sure they feel comfortable no one cares about that the purpose of dei uh in my opinion uh I think this is empirically validated is to make sure that every major corporation government office university in the country there is a fixed constituency for um promoting uh left wing ideology uh in the and specifically through the int- through a left wing interpretation of what the interests of particular minority groups that the woke favor uh and it's not, and if you're not in those groups, and or you're not left wing, you are not included with with white, um,
1: uh, basically anti racism or racism against white people. So I'm kind of curious if you have any thoughts on that, um, or if you've seen any uh, any uh, kind of legal questions come up around it.
15: Sure. Well, look, um, as the other David Bernstein, I'm sure related to you, the woke ideology is in fact uh, behind a lot of this, and it's a particular, it's a completely fair comment to say that. The hostility to Jews is to a large extent, uh, just a manifestation of hostility to anyone except for the groups that the woke left has decided deserve to be protected. I mean, in fairness to the Jews among whom I am, uh, you know, when you're 2% of the population uh, and you've suffered violence you know, and your synagogues and schools and community centers have to have armed guards because there have been terrorist incidents, you're going to be more sensitive to people chanting genocidal uh slogans and so forth than if you're a white male or white woman and you're like combined 60% of the population and you know so forth. I mean there's a different level of vulnerability. So of course, uh it's easier to shrug off uh someone saying, you know, we don't like white people uh because what are they going to do about it when whites are 60% of the population? We don't like Jewish people and we're kind of violent about it. That's actually uh seems like much more of a threat. But you know, I think what I think one thing that has That was obvious to me. I mean, I you know, I'm I've always been on team woke is bad. So uh, it's not like I've converted, but some people who aren't really paying that much attention, you know, they're like, oh, what's wrong with diversity, inclusion, equity? These are all nice concepts. You know, the right wing is just complaining because they don't want to deal with our history. This and that. So I think one thing that we need to um, recognize is that DEI offices are not about diversity equity, and especially not inclusion. <laughs> uh, you won't see any DEI office anywhere ever say, boy, we have a couple of students this year coming from uh, the rural South from evangelical backgrounds, and they're probably going to feel really uncomfortable being here at Brown University with, you know, <laughs> everything goes on at somewhere like Brown University. So we should, you know, work with them, help them make sure they feel comfortable. No one cares about that. The purpose of DEI is uh, in my opinion, uh, I think this is empirically validated is to make sure that every major corporation, government office, university in the country, there is a fixed constituency for, um, promoting, uh, left-wing ideology, uh, in the and specifically through the int- through a left- wing interpretation of what the interests of particular minority groups that the woke favor uh and <laughs> it's not and if you're not in those groups and or you're not left wing, you are not included Now I will just as a caveat, there are some really nice sincere di people out there who don't buy into this ideology and really do want to have inclusion, but that's not primarily what di right. is about in practice di isn't about we want to promote this ideology that you know there's the oppressed class and the oppressor class and the oppressed class could do whatever they want and the oppressor class is inherently evil and this, by the way, I should say this relates very much to the general conflict between Hamas and Israel and the reaction on campus. You say, well, how could anyone be defending? You think about Israel. How can anyone be defending what Hamas did on October seventh when you read about the brutality of the attacks, the gleefulness in which the brutality was engaged, in? and the answer is, well, they have decided for Ideological reasons that um, Israelis are the oppressor class and uh, the and, and Palestinians are the oppressed. And under this, we call it here woke, but the more general uh, term used internationally is decolonization. So they're engaging in decolonization. And if you're the colonized, if you're the oppressed, that is the Palestinians. Everything you do can either be excused or you're not responsible for it. The forces of history are just playing out. So we don't, you know, so we don't look morally speaking. Oh, you raped someone, you threw a baby in the oven. That's about, oh, you're just the the colonized. We can't blame you for what you do. On the other hand, if you're the oppressor, you're not allowed to defend yourself. Uh, at all, and anything that happens to you, you deserve. So, not only does his, the, that so when, Harvard, when the Harvard, thirty-three Harvard organization, says the blame for this lies totally on Israel it's because they're the oppressor, how You know, there's no individual morality. There's no sense of individual rights, natural rights. It's a complete attack on the entire Western tradition, essentially, okay. in favor of a of a invented you know racial hierarchy in which uh, essentially anyone who's deemed the oppressor, which is generally associated with being white uh, is uh, immoral and bad and the other side is good and nothing else matters really.
1: And as always, you can share this episode on Facebook or YouTube, as well as any other podcast platforms such as Apple, Spotify, Anchor, or Ricochet. Download the episode and listen anytime. If you like what you've heard today, give our podcast a five-star rating and go to our website, speechfirst.org, and press donate. See you all in 2024.